As the country marked Labor Day, workers are fighting back with intensity not seen in many years. From UPS to academic workers to writers and actors, major labor struggles have been erupting nationwide in a revolt against mounting inequality and corporate greed. And the next major fight on the horizon is a potential strike at the big three automakers. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We're very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. So Professor Wolff, the country marked Labor Day. There's certainly a lot of reasons to celebrate if you're a a trade union activist, a a rank-and-file worker. Because workers are fighting back, unions are fighting back in a way that, that we haven't seen in really quite some time. And it's capturing, you know, a lot of political momentum, like one struggle is building on the next. What's your big picture takeaway? And then we can drill into some of these specifics. Well, I think beyond what you've just said, and, and you're quite right, and almost everybody from the Wall Street Journal on over to European publications, everyone is taking notice of the fact that American working people are moving. They're moving politically, they're moving on the workplace, and it's going in all many different directions. It's not all clearly the same. The Republican Party, for example, having moved sharply to the right, is likewise able at the same time to say that it is more attractive to working class people than it has been before. The Democratic Party, which used to count on working class people, is less able to do that now than it has been probably since, well, for a long time. And then there's the remarkable surge, not only of strikes by unionized workers, but of unionization, the formation of unions by workers who either don't have them anymore or workers who never had them before. All of those things attest to genuine movement in that phrase, labor movement. And you're right, we haven't seen it for a long time before. So if you're a supporter of labor, as I am, well, then this is a very good news situation. It might be good also to take an example because of what it teaches us both about the good news and the questions. Let's take Starbucks. Just pick an example. Starbucks is a very anti-union corporation and always has been. 
its leader, Mr. Schultz, for most of the time, outspoken in his hostilities towards unionization. And able, at least until the year 2020, in the Western Hemisphere here, to keep its shop union-free. Lots of propaganda against unions, and lots of reliance on a society that made unions, if not invisible, then very suspicious or negative or scary or downright, dare I say it, un-American. Well, then, in August of 2020, that's not very long ago, the first effort to unionize a Starbucks. It happened in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, our northern neighbor, Canada. It took another year, over another year, December 2021, for a group of workers in Buffalo, New York, at a Starbucks to form a union then. So now here we are, less than two years after that success in Buffalo, New York. And what is the report? Let me read it to you. Workers at 448 Starbucks located in 46 of the 50 states of the United States have filed to unionize. 322 Starbucks stores in 42 states have won union elections. By the way, how many of those elections were lost? 81. So it's a better than four to one ratio of workers given the chance to vote for a union or not at Starbucks, four to one voted in favor of having that. And there are more coming. Now, on the other hand, and this is very important, the National Labor Relations Board has filed 93 complaints against Starbucks. The New York Times has written against Starbucks, critical of it. And it turns out that under the labor law of the United States, not only can a corporation fight against your winning the election or even holding an election, but even if you win the election as a group of workers, the company can stall off and slow down working out a contract. And during the time that it takes, which can be years, you're not covered by the fact that you have a union because you don't yet have a union contract with the employer. And that has led to the next important thing about the current labor drive, and that is the alliance unions are recognizing they need with social groups outside of the workplace. So let me give you an example of what Starbucks achieved. There's a Starbucks on the campus of Cornell University in upstate New York. The student assembly there, the student organization, decided to fight to end the contract between Cornell and Starbucks that enables Starbucks to put one of its stores on the campus for the students and faculty. And so they voted, and the students overwhelmingly voted to eject Starbucks because of its anti-union activities which were felt to be incompatible with what the students wanted their university to support and endorse. 
a student worker alliance that worked very well. The students, by the way, have gone on to petition the International Labor Organization, part of the United Nations, to look into Starbucks' anti-union behavior as incompatible with international standards for the rights of working people. This is extraordinary. Every step of that story is extraordinary. And most of all, I would like to emphasize that many examples exist in which workers and their unions or workers trying to form a union have made common cause with community organizations. And since you mentioned the United Auto Workers contract that is expiring on September 14th with Ford GM and the successor to Chrysler Stellantis Motors, I noticed there too an alliance between civic, charitable, religious, and other organizations in and around Detroit with the UAW in order to confront the big three auto companies with a united front of people determined, in this case, to get a contract that really addresses the unmet needs of workers who gave so much to those companies over recent years. So this is an important dimension, this community worker, student worker network of alliances, because just as a union makes workers stronger than confronting the employer one by one, well, then such alliances make workers stronger because it gives a community an ally in the union and vice versa. Yeah, Professor Wolf, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that point about, you know, alliances and the broader popularity and significance of unions in society, because, you know, for many years now, inequality has been a principal political issue in the United States. I mean, it's always been a huge, tremendous problem, but but public consciousness you know, since the Occupy movement in 2011, rising through the success of Bernie Sanders campaigns, you know, there's a lot more consciousness about that now than there has been in previous periods in U.S. history. It seems to me like this current is kind of in search of an organizational vehicle, right? So if, if Bernie Sanders isn't going get to get elected president, then how do we press ahead with the struggle against the billionaire class? And it seems like, you know, organizing at the point of production, organizing at your workplace is an answer that that a lot of people are coming to, a conclusion that a lot of people are coming to. So I wanted to, to get your thoughts about that and also the potential for unions to put forward broader political demands, you know, the demand for, you know, free college education, the demand for universal rent control, the demand for, you know, Medicare for all, for instance, you know, these broad working class demands that would impact, of course, union members, but also unorganized workers as well, putting the unions in this position of being, you know, a, a real political representative, a political voice for the, the broader interests of the entire working class. Is that a way forward for the labor movement too? It's more than a, a way forward. Let me push it. I think it's the only way forward for the labor movement. They have to recapture the unions, the social position they last had in the Great Depression. And let me explain what I mean. The Great Depression of the 1930s, you know, nearly a century ago. That was the high point, as any unionization specialist, anyone interested in the union movement, knows. 
Nothing is more common than hearing a union leader invoke some memory, some past achievement, and if you look closely, it'll go back to the 1930s. Why? Because of two things that should be kept in mind at the same time. Number one, unions fought for social changes that millions of people who weren't in a union or at least weren't yet in a union, could see as benefits to themselves that they would fight for. Let me give you simply the, the most famous examples. The union movement pushed for social security. That was a government program which meant that everybody who reached the age of 65 would get a pension check. They wouldn't be destitute in their old age. They would be recognized and rewarded for a lifetime of work, whether that was in a, an enterprise or at home. And they would not be a burden on their children. This is monumental. And the unions, by fighting for that, got the support of people outside of the labor movement who understood they had a real champion here, somebody who really delivered, namely, a union movement. That same movement got them an unemployment, federal unemployment compensation program. If you lost your job through no fault of your own, you would get a check every week for a half a year, a year, two years, depending upon where you lived, etc. This was a magnificent gesture to people who maybe were unemployed and couldn't pay their union dues, but they would get a benefit that the unions had fought for. Number three, the first minimum wage. Here were workers, most of whom in a union, fought and got higher than a minimum wage, but they were recognizing the needs of the people who weren't able to get a decent wage by giving them a floor, a federal floor, below which wages couldn't go. And then there was the public employment program. The fact that during the middle of the 1930s, the government hired 15 million unemployed people. These were things that the unions fought for that made them, and this is no exaggeration, leaders of a, a broad social movement that really could call itself a working class movement. So yes, having unions take positions on social issues that are really able to represent what the vast majority of working people need and want, and that's the vast majority of the voting population too, let me remind you. That is a necessary way for the unions to move forward. And by the way, it works vice versa. Social movements aimed at overcoming sexism and racism and hostility to immigrants and all of that, they need an alliance with the labor movement because of its history, because of its organization, because of its solidarity, because of its financial resources, all of those things. So I think, yes, that's a strategic way forward. But let me also point out a historical lesson here that folks have missed. We now think of social movements as a multiplicity of different movements, fighting against discrimination against women, discrimination against ethnic or racial or religious groups. We understand those issues. People who are fighting for 
dealing with climate change, people who are fighting for ecological issues across the board, and I could continue. But in the 1930s, we didn't have separate movements so much. We had unified social movements, and they were unified in two socialist and one communist party. And those parties were big and strong in the 1930s. So what you had was an alliance between the labor movement, the AFL and the CIO, particularly in those days, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, on the one hand, and the two socialists and the Communist Party on the other. And they worked what was called the New Deal Coalition. Those unified political parties had within them the anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-discrimination against immigrants, and so on. So you had unified social movements who found it easier to unify then or have a coalition with labor. We suffer right now from the non-unification of our social movements, and that makes it harder, not impossible, but harder for them to ally with the labor movement. That's why I stressed in the case with Starbucks the remarkable behavior of the Cornell students making a bridge to the labor movement. That's why I noted it in the case of the United Auto Workers. There's one more dimension, if I could, that I think is crucial, and I'm going to use another example. There's a 127-year-old brewery in the San Francisco area called the Anchor, or some know it as Anchor Steam Brewery. It's one of the first craft beers locally produced in the United States. I won't go through it, but after some years of difficulty being purchased by a huge mega corporation, a global beer and alcohol distributor, they finally found themselves being neglected by the corporate parent, being driven into what eventually happened, a condition where the parent company decided to close them down depriving the San Francisco area of a famous beer and of people of the jobs that go with producing and distributing a local beer. So guess what? An alliance of the West Coast Longshoremen Union and the workers whose jobs were threatened and a local chapter of the DSA, a socialist organization, they did something A, to get those workers to join the Longshoremen Union, which they did, to make a unionized beer producer. And then when the corporation shut them down, they are forming and they're struggling to do that right now with allies to take over that enterprise, to preserve the jobs, to preserve it for the economy and the pleasure of the San Francisco or greater San Francisco area. They are forming a worker co-op to buy out that brewery and to run it as a collective workers enterprise. This gives labor a whole new weapon. Here's an image I'd like to leave you with. Sitting across from the bosses in a union struggle, they won't come across with a wage increase you need for your people to keep up with inflation and to keep up with the cost of living generally. 
And they tell you, well, nothing you can do about it. We're not going to give you this. And if you push, we'll just shut the plant down, which is a threat often used by the owners, the corporate leaders to intimidate and shut down workers. Up until now, workers have been frightened often by these threats, afraid to call it to see if it's a bluff. But that's changing now as workers discover the worker co-op. The fact that when you're threatened by an employer with shutting the plant down, you now have to the possibility of looking back across the table, grinning and saying, go ahead. You shut this place down, we will reopen it as a worker co-op. We will go to the local politicians and say, you better help us, otherwise you'll be responsible for not keeping this enterprise and these jobs here. You'll be able to help us and will be able to pressure the company by the very reality of the fact that we can go in that direction. We don't have to lose jobs because the corporation doesn't find enough profit in it. We can run it ourselves and do a better job and make it a better business in the process. These are remarkable new weapons and tools and a labor movement that has regained and renewed its spirit, which is what's going on, is now able to look at alliance possibilities and new strategies like the worker co-op being used by the workers at the Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco. I think these are signs that Labor Day 2023 is a very different story from the Labor Days of past years. Professor Wolf, I just want to ask you one more question. You know, of course, those movements that you're talking about are unified on the one hand because of the conscious decisions of the people who are organizing them, who are leading them because of this political consciousness that we're facing a common enemy. But struggles are also unified based on based on sort of the flip side, right? The objective reality that the attacks that working people are facing are, are one in the same, that there are common problems that we have. One thing that the United Auto Workers struggle is dealing with that I think, you know, will resonate for millions and millions of workers is the introduction of new technology. The construction of electric vehicles, which is, of course, essential if we're going to save the planet, that requires a, a lot fewer workers than it does to create, you know, a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle. So the bosses want to take advantage of that and lay off thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of auto workers. And if you look at artificial intelligence, machine learning, other new technologies that are coming down the pipeline. I mean, it's millions and tens of millions of workers who could lose their jobs. And what the auto workers are saying, what the UAW is saying, is let us work less. Let's shorten the working day. Nobody loses their job. Nobody has to lose their income. And technology can actually make our lives better rather than destroying our livelihoods. I mean, this is extremely important for the whole working class, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I am very proud and supportive of the new leadership under Sean Fain at the United Auto Workers for moving in this direction. Let me put on my hat as a professional economist and explain to you, to anybody who isn't clear about this. The introduction of new technology has always been celebrated 
as allowing human beings to do less drudgery, to do less work, to have more freedom for the relationships that matter in their lives, for the creative, artistic, sporting, crafts, all the things that make life beautiful and that people now use their leisure time to pursue. The job of technology is to free human beings. And yet the abuse the perversion of technology is what capitalism as a system does. And here's why. For the employer, the technology, like AI, is interesting. For the same reason the computer was, robots were, and so on. Because, as you put it, they can replace workers with machines. And that's exciting because if you lay off the worker then you don't have to pay that worker a wage anymore, and you can keep the money that you used to pay in wages as added profits, less, of course, the purchase price of the machine that replaces the worker. But the answer has always been, even though union leaders used to not say it, wait a minute, if the machine makes the workers much more productive, here's an alternative. You don't fire the workers. Let's suppose the, the technology makes workers twice as productive as they were before. Okay, cut the working day in half. That way everybody keeps their job, pay them the same wage, they get four hours out of eight free every day, you get the same output that the company had before, you can sell it at the same price that you did before, you can earn the same profit that you did before, because all your expenses are the same, but you have used technology for what it was invented for, to save human labor. You've made the majority, your workforce, way better off, and you haven't lost any profit. That's the reality. Only in capitalism do we allow the technology that makes us more productive to be used just to enhance the profit and to diminish the lives of that half of the working force that you fired and threw on the slag heap, desperate to find a new and different job, even though technology is getting rid of jobs left and right. This is an old issue, and in the end, it isn't about technology, it's about class struggle. For whose benefit is a technology installed in the workplace? For the boss to get more profits at the expense of unemployment? Or for the greater leisure of the much larger number of people who are wage earners compared to the tiny minority who are profit earners? That's the issue, and the UAW in its fight against the auto companies is putting that front and center. And I say for all working people, thank you. That is the kind of leadership a labor movement needs. We're going to have to leave it right there. We've been joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.